My guest today is Chris Belcher, Bitcoin privacy OG. He's been in the game a long time and has made great contributions on privacy. He's involved with JoinMarket, Electrum Personal Server, and most recently he wrote, or rather updated, a fantastic Bitcoin privacy wiki, which you simply must read. Here's my interview with Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, Chris, I've been quite impressed with some of the work that you've been doing. You've been doing a lot of important things in Bitcoin from a privacy point of view. So obviously your work on Join Market, your work on Electrum Personal Server, and most recently your work on the Bitcoin Privacy Wiki, which was truly impressive and a great summary of many different concepts. And it just shows that you've really been thinking quite deeply about this. Uh, yeah, I've been... I've been doing my best about that stuff. I've been thinking lots about privacy over the years for Bitcoin. Excellent. So look, I think it might be good to start with some of the basic concepts and then get a little more advanced as we go into it further. So do you want to just start with talking about some of the basic concepts and ways in which your Bitcoin privacy can be destroyed or removed? Uh, well, basically, um, everyone uses Bitcoin through software, through wallets, and uh, those wallets have to communicate with the outside world. And in doing so, they will generally leak a little bit of information. So uh, this sort of privacy technology stuff is about trying to understand what kind of information is leaked and minimizing that as much as possible. So a big example is uh, address reuse, which is you have these objects called Bitcoin addresses and you uh, money can be sent to them. And generally, they should only be used once for privacy reasons. Uh, you could think of it that you each address is a new identity. And if you only use it once, it's like you throwing that identity once you've used it and creating a new identity. Um, <clears throat> but I think because the, the name of the object, Bitcoin address, it makes it sound like it's a mail address or an email address. So I think in terms of the model people have in their brains, that they... Some of them, I think, use addresses again and again just for that reason, because they don't realize how much it harms privacy. I mean, there, there's, there's loads of examples. There's a whole page full of them. Yeah, sure, sure. And I think one of the other... So that's obviously a lot of the privacy around the transaction graph, and we can talk a little bit about some of the heuristics that get applied. And I think the other angle is also understanding where your and anonymity or privacy can be impinged upon through IP analysis. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, that's right. So uh, wallets obviously have to connect to the Bitcoin network. And the sort of the, the original way that Bitcoin wallets worked is they downloaded the entire blockchain. Uh, and that was and then they scanned the blockchain on their hard drives uh, to see what was the balance of their own addresses and what happened to their own transactions. Uh, but that's quite resource intensive, especially as the blockchain grows. So uh, a lot of people are using lightweight wallets, which generally query some third-party server or a bunch of third-party servers, and they send to them all their addresses, and the servers reply with what the balances are and which transactions are on them. But in doing so, the servers uh, will see what all the addresses are and link them together and generally link them with the user's IP address. Uh, so that's not obviously not great for privacy. You're essentially telling the server exactly what you do uh, with every transaction you have in Bitcoin. And then another IP address-based tracking thing is when wallets broadcast a transaction, um, there can be, so an adversary such as a transaction surveillance company, one thing they do is uh, 
create lots of full nodes out there on the network. And the things they do is ag aggressively announce themselves and try and get wallets to connect to them. So then when a wallet broadcasts its own transaction, uh, these adversarial full nodes out there can try and track the transactions it spreads through the network as it spreads out. And they hope to find the actual IP address where that transaction came from. And uh, a third example might be if you're using Bitcoin and your internet service provider actually can see that you're using it. Uh, so they would, they might not be able to see your transactions or addresses, but they can see you're interested in the thing at all in, in Bitcoin as a whole. So that could be, uh, it could be privacy relevant depending on your threat model. Right. And I think we can start to talk about the potential countermeasures against each of these, but let's first talk through some of the other ways in which you can be de-anonymized. So another example that you raise is just around the obvious AML KYC on exchanges that many people go through. Uh, and also the other one you mentioned is around being de-anonymized or having your privacy impinged upon through things like forum posts, Twitter, social media that get that then get tied back to your real life identity. Yeah, that's right. So the AML one is a is a good example because it actually a lot of the time we spend we spend a lot of effort thinking about actual technology like uh, address reuse or confidential transactions or coin join or something like that. But AML KYC is probably it's a way that completely bypasses that with just requiring people to de-anonymize themselves. And uh, there's actually someone raised a big point that if if every transaction in Bitcoin required AML KYC, then you'd have nobody would have any privacy regardless of what technology they actually had. So if I don't know zero knowledge proofs were soft forked into Bitcoin to add um, to add privacy, then even if every transaction were AML KYC'd, there'd be no privacy because if you had a database of all these, you could just watch where all the money flows. Uh, so in that sense, in a way to get privacy, you actually have to use Bitcoin as money and spend it on things. And you can't just deposit and withdraw from exchanges, from two or three exchanges, and that's that. And in terms of the, the forum post thing, um, that's also, yeah, that, that's also another way of voluntarily uh, d damaging your privacy, where a lot of, I don't know. So for example, people put a, an address on their Twitter, and you could say, if you, if you like my work, you can donate to me or something like that. And um, people could take that address and put it in a blockchain explorer and see the transactions that are coming in and out and look on the transaction graph to see where they go later. So generally, if people are doing that, uh, they should be careful that coins which land on this address don't, I don't know, don't immediately go to some other place that's easy to easy to uh, to track where they're going. For, for example, an exchange that knows their real name. Right. And one example that I came across or from one of my earlier interviews with the Samurai Wallet team um, was they where they mentioned this concept of say a dusting attack and where you might mark some of those coins as you know do not spend. But then I suppose the question is, if you want to spend it at some point, how would you? Would you then have to move that through some kind of coin mixer, coin join uh, service? Yeah, that's a really good. Uh, that's a really interesting concept. This dusting attack. So, in the privacy wiki, I instead use the phrase mystery shopper payment. Because uh, if you think about it, the dusting attack doesn't have to be dust. You could, in theory, give someone $100 or $1,000, which is quite a lot of money, uh, but just to, the, if the real intention is to damage their privacy. Uh, so probably the thing you'd have to do there is make sure 
the way these mystery shopper payments work or, or dusting attacks is they try and get that coin to be linked to other coins. So yes, if you use something like CoinJoin or any other kind of mixing technique which, uh, which stops the transaction graph analysis from working, then you would get privacy from that. There's quite an interesting paper I saw, which is linked from the Privacy Wiki, where uh, some researchers were doing this for ransomware. So they would, uh, ransomware would, would like accept Bitcoin payments to decrypt their, ran you know, for their victims, for their ransomware victims. And uh, they would actually do this, these mystery shopper payments. And they sent them about $1 each. And some of the ransomware authors just, you know, swept up all the, all the, all the dusts, all the mystery shopper payments into their own wallets. And the, um, then the researchers could see like what their wallets were and roughly how much money they made. And some other ransomware authors never touched the money. It's just still there and they never spent it. And there's actually a great line in the, in the paper, which talks about maybe we didn't pay them enough. Maybe we only paid them $1. Maybe we should try $10, but they, <laughs> you know, they couldn't, they didn't want to spend that much money. So they didn't do it, but it's interesting to see how in the future this might develop because it's essentially, it's essentially a bribe. You're trying to pay money to someone to, ruin their privacy and if they don't want to you know if they're not bribed by one dollar you'll try ten dollars or a hundred dollars maybe <laughs> that's really clever yeah i think it ultimately comes to how savvy the criminals are and whether they're aware of this kind of dusting or mystery shopper attack or whether they are just unaware and they're just you know or, or their wallets are not sophisticated enough to have some kind of coin control um but Another concept I was keen for you to discuss, and I, I think this is a fantastic point that you made very well in your privacy wiki, was the fact that many times it may not be one of those methods we mentioned above, say IP, transaction graph, AML, forum posts. It may not be one of them, but it may be a combo of the above that leads to somebody losing their privacy. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So this uh, this idea of combo, I've been calling it data fusion, um, is where essentially it's never just one method because one method, for example, the IP address tracking method that will link a transaction to an IP address. And that doesn't ruin your privacy. Like your IP address is only, it's not necessarily linked to your name. You still need to go another step to find who's linked to the, uh, will be linked to which computer you're at and then who's using that computer. So it's always, uh, I've got, I've got a picture, a diagram on the wiki, which is, uh, two, two circles, like a Venn diagram of one privacy leak in one circle and then another privacy leak in another circle. And the intersection of them two is much smaller than either of those. Um, and that's kind of explaining how it's uh, a combination of privacy leaks is always the, ends up being the real damage. Um, so in that example there, it's someone who's posted their address on a forum and then overlaid, overlaid that with somebody who's um, uses uses that money to buy something incriminating, like a illegal newspaper or something. Uh, so, and the point I'm trying to make there is, people sometimes think, oh, these privacy leaks are quite small, like address reuse. It doesn't damage things that much, or using a lightweight wallet doesn't damage things that much. But really, a, a combination of all them together uh, generally completely damages your privacy. So it's worth stamping out every last privacy leak, even if it seems really small. That's a well-made point. And I think what you're really driving towards there is that, and this is a point you also make, is that there's no one silver bullet to maintaining Bitcoin privacy, that really it's more like a multi-prong approach that an individual has to take when they're trying to defend their privacy. So with that in mind, can you just offer us some 
basic tips for listeners who are interested on ways to maintain their privacy? Yeah, so that um, that point about the multi-pronged thing, that's actually true outside of Bitcoin. Uh, even if you could say, for example, if you use Tor, which would give, allows you to browse the internet anonymously, you could still use Tor and then go on Facebook and log in with your real name and upload your real photo. And that'd be damaging your privacy, even though, hey, I'm using Tor. It's all fine, right? Yeah. But no, privacy is always a whole, it's a whole, uh, has to essentially encompass your entire, all your behavior and all the technology you use. And for what people could do best uh, to just the casual Bitcoin user, I guess, I think the, the top thing is to not do address reuse, followed by not using uh, lightweight wallets. So to only use a full node. Or possibly use a wallet which which works by client side block filtering, which is a it's a way of which is a way of having a lightweight wallet without a which learns its own history in a generally quite private way. But for most people, just using a full node wallet is the best. And there's a and uh, trying to avoid AML KYC, I guess maybe buying your coins in cash and then spending them in a way that's anonymous. Yeah, so I suppose that's the other difficulty. Depending on where people live, depending on what you know, what the local bitcoins or hodl hodl, you know, or other kind of peer to peer markets exist where people live, they may have difficulty being able to buy bitcoins in a way that doesn't require AML KYC. Yeah, and they have to think about uh, what their threat model is. So, what are their actual requirements for? All? So, if some people only want uh, only want privacy to stop them being advertised to having uh, custom ads for them for them personally or other people might want to be hiding from uh, from their governments if they're in Syria or Venezuela or third people might want to be hiding from just their neighbors who they don't want to know what money they're spending and all those three cases would require different behaviors or um, like the person who's hiding from their neighbors probably doesn't need to worry about AML KYC because their neighbors can't access those records so you have every person has to think about it in the in their own personal way, like what's their own personal threat model? Who are they hiding from? I see, yeah. And I think it'll be good now to also talk about just modern day privacy techniques. Are there any that you're most excited about today in early 2019? Yeah, uh, I think there's two big ones. So one is uh, PayJoin, which is a specific type of coin join, And that's really special because all the coin joins that existed so far are... Uh, they're obviously coin joins. So if you look at them on the blockchain, you can see, oh, this is obviously a coin join. Something interesting is happening here. And therefore, if you're an adversary, you can exclude them from your analysis. But pay join uh, is really great because you can't do that. It just looks like a normal transaction. And so it, it's uh, an adversary can't ex exclude them and pay join will continue to gum up their analysis that it will stop working and it essentially breaks a very powerful assumption called the common input ownership heuristic. Uh, so I'm quite excited about that. And the second one I'm excited, which is slightly further out, is CoinSwap technology, which is, um, it's been known since 2013, but it's essentially a way of two parties uh, swapping coins with escrow. So I know Alice and Bob, and Alice sends one Bitcoin to Bob, and Bob sends one Bitcoin to Alice, but it's done with smart contracts in a way that neither can cheat each other and the effect of that is that the uh, is that if you then see a transaction which sends from A to B, you can't know that actually it's really sent from A to B because really the, 
this transaction that an adversary sees could be a coin swap. And A to B, the coin, the ownership of the coin actually ends up in Z or an X or Y or some completely random place on the blockchain. So that would destroy the assumption of uh, of the transaction graph. It will destroy this idea that if you see coins flowing from A to B, that you can know that they really went from A to B. They could have teleported, in a sense, to Z. Fascinating stuff, yeah. Um, look, while we're just on that topic of talking about coin joins, I'm curious to know your thoughts on... Okay, so obviously I agreed about how PayJoin improves privacy from uh, uh, obviously making doing sort of coin joins in a way that aren't obviously a coin join. What about these concepts, say, something like, a, I'm sure you're familiar with Samurai Wallet's Stonewall, which is apparently, as I understand it, it is a transaction that is constructed in such a way that it looks like a coin join, but it actually is not. Uh, that is, that, that yeah, that probably is a good idea, since if... Um... If there's an analyst who says anything that looks like a coin join, I'm going to exclude from my analysis. If you then create fake like coin joins that look like they're coin joins but actually aren't, then you could get the analyst to exclude your transaction, or at least they'd they'd believe they can't see what's going on when really they can. So um, yeah, I mean yeah, it's definitely valuable. The only thing I'd be concerned about is then uh, transactions aren't in isol- in isolation, so you could see the previous. Tr- where the previous inputs have gone from and where the later outputs go to. And I suppose if you see them then being uh, co-spent together, or if the previous previous inputs were somehow obviously owned by the same person, then you could maybe deduce that uh, this is really a fake coin join. Although I, don't, I haven't analyzed it much, so I don't know how easy it would be to do that. But I think it's definitely worth thinking about and doing. It can't hurt, right? If you get it wrong, then you're still in the same situation as you were before. <laughs> That's right. And with uh, PayJoin, what are the um, kind of hopes for that being implemented in terms of timelines? Now, I understand Samurai Wallet are working on something, are working on that, and I think they call it Stowaway. Do you know of any other Bitcoin wallets that are working on a similar kind of functionality? Yeah, there's a Join Market has a uh, ha- has implemented PayJoin in it. Uh, it, it works already. It's been the last release, but you can only pay other join market wallets. And I think with Samurai Wallet, it'll be quite similar that you can only pay other Samurai wallets. And that's the that's probably the main difficulty with PayJoin and with any coin join is it actually requires interactivity that the people paying each other have to uh, not just like one person sends an address to another person who then sends coins to it, but they actually have to uh, swap partially signed transactions with each other in about three rounds of interaction. Um, so it's not, I think the, the idea is actually still in the design stage in the sense of who you, how the protocol should work and how it should be, how, how it will end up working in the way that all this, all this interaction, like it becomes practical. So for example, we'd, the way we use Bitcoin right now is people share addresses and then you, you send money to pay to that address. But with PayJoin, you couldn't do that. You'd probably need to share some kind of host name like an IP address or a Tor onion address, because you need to connect to the other person somehow. Uh, and then you, to do this interaction. So probably, I, I guess in the future, maybe PayJoin will work that you have a thing that's like a Bitcoin address, but really it encodes a host name. And then you, uh, the person you're paying to has to be online. So it's a bit like Lightning, the 
so it'd be most appropriate maybe for paying merchants rather than individuals paying to each other unless they're both online. So I'd say the idea is still it's still in the design stage, really. Yeah. Okay. And I think, I guess, as you're saying, it's a bit of a coordination problem. And then there's also that aspect of trying to make it interoperable, right? Probably I'm imagining, actually, it would... Yeah, so every wallet needs to... Uh, would need to then adopt this new address type. And probably the the first thing it, that it may be adopted is in BTC Pay Server as like a merchant solution. And then some wallets might adopt it and they can only pay BTC Pay Server merchants. So... That might be that might be a way it works. I'm not sure. And then probably some exchanges would never adopt it. Well, not some exchanges, but people who who just aren't interested in the idea. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting one because some people would also argue that even exchanges might have some not not necessarily requirement, but it might be a good thing for them to actually mix their customers' coins to help improve their own customers' privacy. Yeah. That, um, because that privacy is also really important for traders. So there's an example I've been say telling people quite often of about address reuse is that suppose you're a trader and you want to sell some coins and you send a you make a deposit to an address that's been used 50 times before. Uh, anyone could see that it's been broadcast that this money goes to an exchange because they can see that the previous times the address was used it that it it's bitstamps or it belongs to Coinbase or something like that. So they'll see this transaction and it takes three confirmations to actually be credited, which is about half an hour. So probably what people will do is then open shorts. So the price would move, the price would move downwards. Uh, and then when the, when the money actually appears in the trader's accounts, the price has already moved against them and they could sell them for a less attractive price. So that kind of thing is a direct example of how privacy is actually really important for traders. Uh, since trading, I suppose you could say is a way of, you have to hide your intentions from the rest of the market. So yeah, there could definitely be arguments of exchanges trying to protect their customers' privacy. Right, and that's probably an example where something like Liquid with confidential assets and confidential transactions could help in that example as well. Yeah, absolutely. Another area I was interested to ask your thoughts on, and in the article you touch on this as well, that you're quite uh, optimistic about Lightning Network in terms of how Lightning Network may improve people's privacy. Can you comment a little bit on sort of the aspects there around privacy and potentially any ways that you, people could still be de-anonymized even if they're using Lightning Network? Yeah, so with, with Lightning, um, as it's off-chain, it means all the on-chain privacy things, privacy problems just don't exist. So everything I said about address reuse and the common input ownership heuristic, uh, mystery shopper payments and all that kind of stuff just isn't a problem in Lightning because there are no addresses and there are no co-spent inputs or anything like that, that it's all off-chain. So just from that, I think there's a lot of uh, positive there for Lightning and privacy. But there, there is still, uh, yeah, there are still problems. So for example, you could have the technology and then not use it. For example, if you use, if most people use Lightning through a custodial web wallet, then, um, then the web wallet will see everything you do. And I've noticed there's been uh, a lot of people some people have been using Lightning wallets, which are actually custodial, which just connect to some centralized server, which has payment channels between only from that server to other places. And therefore the server will see everyone's payments. Or another, other ideas which might happen is uh, you could potentially tell, um, 
sell the balance of every payment channel by an adversary uh, trying to pay through each of them. And then when they get a message back saying there's not enough capacity, they from that could tell how much is in the pay, in the payment channel. And then they have to do this for the entire network and then do it maybe once a second or something. So, so I don't know how practical this is, but hopefully, I don't know if anyone studied it and hopefully like it costs too much in transaction fees or something, but that is probably uh, the worst case. If, if this idea of probing every payment channel could somehow work, then that would be quite damaging. Well, there's a few other ideas. For, for example, the intermediate nodes along a lightning payment can, right now they can tell the exact payment amount and um, for, that could be somehow damaging to privacy depending on the situation. But I think overall it's quite positive. Right. So, yeah, it's a really interesting um, analysis you bring there, this idea of potentially trying to probe across the entire lightning network at one time or at least the public publicly visible channels to try and sort of figure out based on the movement in those balances, I suppose, if I understand you correctly. Yes. Yeah, so if you, if someone could see every balance, every balance of every channel, uh, which they can't, that's not in the design, but if they could, then they could see payments happening because they could see like the change in balance as it spreads across through one path, through one payment and see, okay, so this node is paying that node and they've paid them this much. Right. Um, but I, I don't think it's practical. I hope it's not practical, but it's something that needs to be studied, which is fine because Lightning's quite a new system and people haven't studied anything yet. Yeah, I see. And I think another component that might destroy that or at least move against that is this concept of AMP as well, the multi-path routing. I suppose that might be another way to help reduce the ability of somebody to probe the network and infer the movement in the balances because then they wouldn't know kind of where those had gone. Yeah, that's right. And also AMP stops individual nodes uh, seeing the actual amount because now they only see an, an upper bound of the amount if the payment is split among many parts. So AMP is also great for privacy and liquidity. Fantastic. Also, there's a, an idea I wrote about, although I didn't know how practical it is, that uh, Lightning nodes, maybe one out of 50 times, reply with a routing failure, even if they do have capacity. And then one out of 50 might be it will be fine for users because they could make another payment within in less than a second. But for an adversary trying to do it for the whole network, they have to deal with one out of 50 failures. And, you know, there's 10,000 payment channels or something. So that's, you know, 50 loads of failures. Oh, that's clever. I didn't know that. Fascinating stuff. Um, okay, I've got another question. So now with this whole, obviously with cryptocurrencies, there's a lot of chatter about, well, in the, at least not as much now, but in the past, a lot of chatter about privacy coins. And my question to you was more like, do you have thoughts on Bitcoin's level of privacy if it's correctly done versus some of the privacy coins like the Moneros and Zcashers of the world? Yeah, well, with um, one thing with Bitcoin that's often missed in these discussions is it actually has way more usage. So you can, you can like look at Monero's blockchain, for example, and see it has 100 times less transactions per day or I think it was about, it was a hundred when I looked last. It might be different now, but that means you, in a sense, you have a hundred times less of a crowd. I mean, if you do a very naive calculation, a hundred times less of a crowd to hide within, um, and that's because of the network effects. Because people who want to use any money, will you go for the most liquid, the most used, and the most developed currency, and that will be end up that will end up being Bitcoin. But no, it's it's without question that something like Monero 
uh, if it was the first cryptocurrency ever invented, would be much more private. But it does come with trade-offs. So Monero full nodes, uh, they scale much worse than Bitcoin. So we can expect over time they'll be really expensive to run because they have an, a big unprunable accumulator. They have to essentially remember every um, unspent coin. They don't know when a coin's been spent, so they can't delete it. And uh, before I mentioned that full nodes are quite important to run to use Bitcoin privately. And right. it's kind so of, it's sad kind of in like sense the equivalent that, of the UTXO set. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I mentioned earlier, uh, full nodes are important for privacy. And if we expect over time that Monero full nodes will be hard to run, then they won't be able to have that privacy. They'll have to use custodial wallets somehow. And then for Zcash, that that takes the scale off to an even worse even worse sense in a in a sense that they uh, those Zcash private transactions they're so expensive it seems that most people don't actually use them that supposedly most Zcash transactions are actually the non-private type because a private transaction takes I think several seconds on a CPU to actually generate like it might be different now but that's what it was when I read it and that comes down to I think a general point in that these systems work by they work by adding privacy by adding decoys like in in Monero they have the other the other spent coins that are included in the ring, ring signature and then that requires more data because those decoy whatever like the general term decoy that requires bandwidth and storage and all that stuff and i think probably a more productive way of finding privacy is to remove data rather than adding more decoy data and that's what that's what lightning does so uh, lightning doesn't add privacy by adding decoy data it adds privacy by taking away data from the blockchain by having off-chain transactions so uh, that that solves this trade-off between privacy and scalability hopefully because you get both you get scalability and privacy so in my view that will be a much more productive way to get privacy in the future right? people won't use something that's not scalable okay great so how about just the factor? So I guess what you're get what you're driving to there at the start of that answer was really around the size of the anonymity set. And so it's a fair point to say that Bitcoin's anonymity set is just so much larger, and that does afford it some level of protection. Um, but I suppose then the question would also be how many people in Bitcoin are actually doing coin joins and pay join and you know using join market and Samurai Wallet and Wasabi Wallet. I guess that would be the question then. Yeah, that's right. And the answer is much fewer. But um, it also it comes back to the threat model idea. So if you were, I don't know, suppose you were in a country where using Bitcoin was illegal, know, Venezuela or Syria or something like that, and you go and uh, buy Bitcoin from someone, there'll be, there'll be fewer people who, no, there'll be more people who can be confused with you uh, just just by doing the trade. Like I give you cash and you give me Bitcoins than there would be for Monero. So in that kind of threat model, the the techno like the idea of using coin joins and other privacy technology isn't that important because just using Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency is illegal. Um, but yeah, in, in the privacy in the threat model of people trying to spy on you but Bitcoin is legal, then uh, yeah, then coin joins are really important. So in in that sense the 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 th the concept of anonymity set that I mentioned there is probably really oversimplifying it because, yeah, because Bitcoin, uh, not every transaction is the same as a Monero transaction.
Yeah, interesting. And I suppose it just speaks generally to this idea that we want to just try and encourage the use of some of these technologies where where feasible. Um, and I think another question just around this whole concept of fungibility and this idea of one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin and that they're all the same. My, this, maybe this is getting a little more philosophical, but to what extent are we in our kind of human mind placing non-fungibility onto Bitcoin when it already is fungible. And what I'm speaking to here is uh, one of my friends, Safety and Immersers, recently commented, and it was a good observation. He was saying, it's not like there is a separate market for fungible Bitcoins and then there's a separate market for tainted Bitcoins. So do you have any comments on that, Chris? Uh, yeah, that's right, that uh, such a market doesn't exist today. But I think the big fear is that... Uh, I think to be concrete, the big fear is that these transaction surveillance companies like Chainalysis and Neutrino and so on, that they'll they'll become so pervasive that they can end up turning the screw. So today they might think, okay, we don't have the power to, you know, to they won't see it as destroying fungibility. They'll see it as tracking criminals or something. Uh, they'll say we don't have the power to do that today, but if we get enough exchanges to use our services and that kind of thing, and, and if we... Uh, stop all trading outside of these exchanges then we'll be able to you know we'll be able to find the bad guys it'll be great and then at that moment fungibility um could be lost so uh yeah it's true that it's not a problem today and even if it was a problem i think there are uh privacy technologies out there like you could put your money through coin joins and that kind of thing and then they would uh they would in a sense lose their history because because these transaction surveillance companies can't see can't see where they came from they'll just see a coin join so uh, I think the future looks good but it's not it could it could still be ruined in a sense for example if I think if if every transaction ended up being associated with AML KYC then that could be quite damaging for fungibility yeah great point and we definitely don't want an ecosystem where people have to first assess their coins versus some kind of blacklist or assess their coins for taint before sending them or before accepting them as payment and definitely that would ruin the overarching system but uh, just curious to get your thoughts there yeah that would be the the death of a decentralized bitcoin yes definitely Yep. So interested to talk now about join market. So I've, I've tried to do a little bit of reading, but maybe it would be great if you could just give the listeners an overview on what join market is and what the model is in terms of maker taker. Yeah. So join market is a, it's an implementation of coin join and it was first created and released in 2014, 2015. And the idea was, so it's not the first implementation of coin join there, there have been before join market, there was at least three or four others. And they had this problem that you had to wait for a coin join. So uh, coin joins work that more than one person, I don't know, say 10 or any number, they have to come together to create a single Bitcoin transaction. And it means you need the, it's actually an economic problem. Like you need to allocate resources. You need the right resource, i.e. coins, in the right place at the right time, in the right quantity. And um, the way most other systems solve that was you had a queue. So you had to, run this wallet or application and then every so often maybe once a day or something a coin join transaction will be made and you couldn't choose the amount it will have to be fixed fixed that uh there was andy toshi's coin join tool which had them at one bitcoin for example or something like that so the insight with coin join uh sorry with join market wasn't really a technological thing it was an it was an economic solution and that was to use market forces to solve this problem uh, of liquidity and that worked that um 
if you wanted to do a coin join, I know the user, you'd have a wallet and you could do a coin join right there uh, for any amount you wanted, uh, like, you know, now, as soon as you press the send button. But in return, you'd have to pay a coin join fee, which is you'd have to pay the other people who are creating the coin join. And uh, they were called makers and the user who sends a coin join straight away is called a taker. So like liquidity maker and liquidity taker, like in exchanges. And then these liquidity makers, they could actually earn money. So all they need to do was run a run a program on their computer and put bitcoins in it. And when other people wanted to create coin joins with these with their own coins, they'd earn a small they'd earn the coin join fee. It would be, you know, much less than one percent because there's there's because of the supply and demand and stuff. And uh, that seemed to work really well. So right now in join market you can create coin joins for an amount up to about two hundred bitcoins just right there as soon as you press send and it costs you not very much money, like much less than 1%. And uh, the reason it works so well is because CoinJoin is actually a kind of smart contract. So there's no way that any party can steal Bitcoins from any other party. The, the CoinJoin is atomic, that it either all happens or none of it happens. So there's no risk of any party losing their coins because of that reason. And, and that's the, essentially a short overview of, of join market, really that it's a way of using market forces to make coin joins happen in a way that's useful. Fantastic. And then do, is there any sort of central coordinator involved for join market? How, how, can you explain that part? Yeah, so the central coordinator, or at least the, the coordinator of coin joins is the taker. So the taker contacts all these other makers and asks them for their, uh, for their partially signed transactions. Um, and then the taker sends the partially signed transactions back to each maker and gets them to sign it. So the coordinator is the taker. And that also means the taker can, they know all the mapping. So they know which inputs correspond to which outputs. And that's, um, I suppose that's a bit of a privacy leak, but the um, sort of the economic argument is that, well, the taker wanted to create this coin join and he's paying for it. So presumably he's not gonna ruin his own privacy by publishing the coin join mapping on the internet. I don't know, like if that argument convinces you, maybe it does. But in practice, like when when somebody looks at a coin join transaction on the blockchain, they can't see the mapping between the inputs and the outputs. But there is a definite point there that the privacy of the taker is stronger than the privacy of the makers, because the makers there's one at least one other person who knows where the makers' coins went, and the taker only knows where their own coins went. Right. And so I suppose the people providing the liquidity in this example are the makers and the takers are the ones paying the fee, kind of like in the same way that a market maker on an exchange is kind of sort of making money on it like a bid-ask spread. Um, but in this case, it's more like the makers are the ones just kind of offering up Bitcoins in uh, kind of saying, yes, my, here are my, you know, my my two bitcoins that I'm willing for you to use as part of your coin join. Is that essentially what's going on there? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. So the terminology is the same because the same, it's the same sort of the same job in terms of economics is being done there. So in traders, these guys provide liquidity for trading for buying and selling. And in join market, these guys provide liquidity for uh, creating coin joins. Fascinating. Chris, can you just, comment for us on how technical you need to be on installing join market and using join market uh yeah it's unfortunately 
fairly technical. So it involves um, installing things on the command line and uh, installing some dependencies. So that's uh, that's not ideal, I guess. But the it's not that difficult if you there's tutorials and that kind of thing. But I suppose the the underlying reason why it happens is that Join Market's an open source project which doesn't really have many resources in a sense that it, it can't tell people, okay, you work on this thing to make it easier to install, you work on this other thing. And um, so people just work on the things they're interested in and that normally ends up being to improve privacy of how it works. And I suppose by analogy, you could say it's a bit like the the Linux of CoinJoin or something that, that it's a bit hard to use and install. But hopefully that will change one day. Chris, could you just comment a little bit around using it as well so i understand to install it it's a you need to use character line interface but in terms of the kind of user interface for somebody using join market can you just talk through how that would work oh so actually using it is a lot easier because there's a there's a gui a gui so uh, that looks a lot like a wallet that you you press create wallet and it gives you 12 words that you write down and then you can, it shows you Bitcoin addresses, you can send money there. And uh, you can, when you press send or, or repeated send, then it sends a transaction, but those are actually coin joins. And there's also um, a built-in scheme where it will automatically create many different coin joins in a way to add even more privacy. So coin joins that then spend from your previous coin joins. And that's all included in this GUI. So hopefully using it is a, is a lot easier once you've installed it yeah and so i understand the way um wasabi wallet works as well it's it uses this concept of multiple rounds of mixing is that essentially a similar concept that you're applying there in join market yeah yeah i think it's exactly the same thing in that coin join is uh you get much more privacy from coin join when you cascade the coin joins i.e do them again and again so yeah this is it's essentially the same thing this is a a mode of operation that just automates the process. So normally people uh, write their destination, like the Bitcoin addresses where they want the coins to end up and then press the, this Tumblr mode and then leave their computer on for eight hours. And by the end of it, the coins will end up in that place via many different coin joins. Fantastic. And lastly, Chris, on this topic of um, join market, can you just comment a little bit? I mean, no, no below the belt punches, but I'm just curious if you could... Just from your point of view, contrast join market with some of the other uh, privacy wallets, so say Wasabi wallet or Samurai wallet. Yeah, so uh, probably the closest contrast is Wasabi as they both use CoinJoin as both their, their modus operandi. And there are um, different approaches there. So I think Wasabi has this liquidity problem that I mentioned before that uh, users have to wait in a queue, essentially, that CoinJoin happen once every hour or hour and a half. And they can't choose the amount. That The amount can only be roughly, not exactly 0.1 BTC, but around there. And if you want to do more, then there are there are certain tricks. So yeah, I think it has the liquidity problem uh, that the other CoinJoin implementations had. And the reason is that you liquidity isn't paid for. So in a sense, the price of liquidity is fixed at zero. Um, but apart from that, it is, it is good in, in loads of other ways. So it uses client-side block filtering, which is... Uh, it allows itself to synchronize its history and balance without revealing to any third-party server which which addresses it has, and it's also much easier to use. So it's run by a company, and they have they have an income and they have an investment. So 
they can make the whole thing really easy to install and use and and that's quite nice that's obviously great for users and then for samurai wallets i also like a lot of the things they're doing like they have this stowaway the thing we mentioned before and they're working on pay join or maybe they've already finished it but the thing i'm concerned about there is that samurai is an is a wallet on your smartphone so smartphones aren't very powerful and you can't re easily run a full node there so the way samurai works is it connects to a centralized server and then tells it all your bitcoin addresses um so then i.e the samurai the samurai server can see what your addresses are and ruin your privacy um but still for all these things it's it depends on the person's threat model so if your threat model means that you don't mind samurai server seeing your addresses then it could be really useful for example I, if you're if you're a bitcoiner in venezuela and i don't know samurai server isn't inside venezuela then it's fine to use samurai so i mean yeah i'm, I'm positive of all of them it's it's good that people try different technologies, but they uh, it's good to understand the trade-offs. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, I mean, there's different um, trade-offs with all of them. And I understand, you know, Samurai Wallet are making efforts on that to try and have this Dojo product or allow you to connect to your own sort of trusted node. And, and I know um, one another trade-off could be with Wasabi Wallet, my understanding is to make the mixing easier and to make the to make it work, it, it is currently only BEC32 addresses uh, what's what sort of does Join Market have a similar kind of uh, Beck thirty two only, or is it using other addresses as well? So Join Market uses P two S H wrapped SegWit addresses, so they start with three. Got it. Got it. Okay, great. So I look. Um, I think it might be great now to talk a little bit about Electrum Personal Server, another one of your projects, and I, and uh, this is quite a, um, you know, I'm quite positive on this. Um, could you just maybe explain to the listeners why should they look into Electrum Personal Server? What are the benefits for them? Uh, so Electrum Wallet is, it's a software wallet and I think it's quite nice. It um, has lots of features and all that kind of stuff. It can interface with hardware wallets. But the biggest downside that I saw is that as a lightweight wallet, it connects to third-party servers and tells them what all your Bitcoin addresses are and it can see your transactions and that kind of thing. So you can mitigate this by running your own server uh, but the the Electrum, like the sort of the default implementation, the way it works is it has a big index of every address that was ever used on the blockchain and every transaction that was ever used and obviously every block. Um, so it's quite resource intensive and it takes a long time to generate this index and you have to have a lot of disk space and all that stuff. So Electrum Personal Server is, it's essentially a way of having an Electrum server, but that uses the minimum possible resources. So it works by, instead of tracking every possible address, it only tracks your addresses. So when you start it up and configure it, you actually tell it your Electrum master public key. And from that, it generates your wallet and tracks only that. And that means that it's, you, it, you, it's essentially a layer on top of a full node. And it means the full node is compatible with pruning and with blocks only and uh, with reducing bandwidth requirements and all these other things that reduce the resource requirements of a full node. So it's, uh, I think it's it's interesting in that respect. So, because it allows you to use a full node with your Electrum wallet. And we know full nodes are good for privacy and for validation. So making sure that you really do have Bitcoins instead of some attack or another altcoin. <laughs> yep, exactly. And uh, if you could just tell the listeners the the basic process around installing Electrum Personal Server and how to use it. Yeah, so you um, you go to the GitHub page, 
uh, and uh, there's a short tutorial there which uh, right now involves a little bit of command line uh, command line manipulation but it's it should be fairly simple it doesn't have any dependencies and uh, in the future what they hope to do is for windows users to create a, uh, a windows executable where you could essentially just double click it as a windows user and it will start election personal server and there'd be no installation uh, so that should be quite nice but right now you follow the tutorial on the github fantastic yeah, I think it's a great technology. It's great software that people um, should look into where they can. So, Chris, another topic I was interested to discuss with you is just this whole idea of chain analysis, which you touched on earlier. Now, my question is, now you're a guy who's thought very deeply and you know, thought about this. Do you believe there might be cases where law enforcement or other chain analysis companies let's chain analysis companies let's say not necessarily law, law enforcement that they might overplay their hand in terms of what they can actually prove with the chain analysis oh i think they definitely overplay their hand right now because it's good for their business so uh, if they can if they can convince people that these techniques always worse work then they can get investment much more easily because they can tell investors just give us money and we'll implement these techniques and then it will definitely 100% work. And also they'll get more customers because they'll tell people if you buy our product then you'll you know you'll be protected from all all the all the law enforcement stuff that you need to do. So I think there's definitely an incentive or already to exaggerate how well the techniques work. And how well they actually work in practice is actually it's a problem we can't really know because uh the victims of I, people who want privacy are never really going to uh, tell what the real story is. So we're lacking, we're generally lacking like a ground truth in a sense that we can have these heuristics like address reuse and common input ownership heuristic and that kind of thing. Uh, but we don't, we can't check if they really works, if you see what I mean. So uh, for the answer of how well do their, do their techniques work, like we're not really sure. It's hard to know for certain. There is some cases where you can know. For example, uh, the Mt. Gox exchange a few years ago, it was it was obviously hacked and taken down. And then a few months after that, its database was leaked. So you had almost the complete database of every transaction going back for years. And from there, you actually had the ground truth. You could link that with the blockchain analysis and see how well the techniques worked. So in that case, you could see a ground truth. And Mt. Gox is a great example because it had this feature where you could import a private key as a user of Mantbox. And then it would sweep the coins and send them to somewhere else. And this had the effect of breaking the common input ownership heuristic, which is what these companies rely on. And then in that case, it turned out the analysis doesn't work very well at all. Um, so I'm not sure. As an answer to whether they work, maybe. I don't know. And it's hard to tell. Right, yeah. And I suppose just a bit of a follow-up question to that. Let's say enough people start using transaction graph privacy, i.e. they they start avoiding that uh, common ownership input or the merge heuristic, as I think uh, Mike Hearn called it. Would, what would be kind of the... Because obviously this is like a cat and mouse game, right? So once that part gets, let's say, solved, what would be kind of the next level that they would start doing? Would they just try to use IP analysis or AML, KYC, Stronger? Do you have any ideas on what that might be? That's a good question. What would be there in a post-common in a post input ownership heuristic world? Um, 
I'm not sure. I guess they could try IP address tracking and uh, all the AML KYC stuff. I don't, I I can't think of anything right now. Like yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it would have to be that they'd have to use they they'd have to try and use IP address tracking and AML KYC if they could. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, okay. No, just just curious. I, it just came to me then. Um, okay, another question I was keen to ask, and you know, I'm sure you'll have uh, opinions on this. Do you have thoughts on the next generation block explorers that we're seeing nowadays? Things like ox.t.me with Laurent and uh, with Blockstream.info, which now actually shows privacy heuristics applied to specific transactions. Yeah, they're um, they're a good effort because they. I think they're really great because a lot of this, so this privacy technology, we know, at least, you know, some people know, I think everything, not everything, but many things that are out there, there are, but I think the general Bitcoin using public doesn't really know a lot about these things, that they don't know that address reuse is a problem, some of them, or they don't know that this merge, the merge heuristic, how bad that is, or um, using the different script types or the other things. So those things are definitely good in terms of education. And uh, a thing I, I've been thinking lately about that might be worth trying to do is to rename this object address because of how because of how it implies that you can reuse it, like it's an email address or a mail address. So maybe it's worth renaming it in, in the Bitcoin space to something like Bitcoin invoice and then, or Bitcoin invoice address. And uh, that might make it more obvious to people, to users, that you should only use them once. So yeah, the, any kind of education I think is definitely good. And I don't want to talk it down or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, as much as I would love to try and change the terminology, I think sometimes the ship has already sailed. It reminds me a little of, um, you know, some of the discussion around trying to not use sats and use things like nanobit and picobit and so on. But ultimately, the street names these things. And that was the point I believe um, Dr. Adam Back made. He was saying, look, the street names these things even like, millimeters like builders might say mills on a site you know so i think for better or worse we're probably unfortunately stuck with the address term yeah unfortunately yeah so look i think we're pretty much getting to time um but i think i'd love to give you a chance to kind of offer some um yeah i'd love to give you a chance to just offer some closing thoughts and obviously you know i want to motivate some of the listeners to go and read uh the bitcoin privacy wiki that you just wrote um, and one one line that really struck out to me or stuck out to me from your privacy wiki was this line. Was, the Bitcoin white paper made a promise of how we could get around the visibility of the ledger with pseudonymous addresses. But the ecosystem has broken that promise in a bunch of places and we ought to fix it. Can you offer some closing thoughts there for the listeners, Chris? Yeah, so that I think the main point there is Bitcoin privacy is a really big topic and it requires at least a little bit of reading and understanding for how you uh how you use bitcoin in a private way that it is totally possible to use it in a private way uh, it just requires a little bit of know-how but um yeah the the original the i mean the original paper was 10 years ago and any any kind of knowledge will advance in 10 years so the things we know now were not known to satoshi or anyone else who was around then back in the time Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I know. I, I think the the future is bright, but it takes a will take a bit of work, I guess. Excellent. All right, Chris. Well, look, I think um, if you could just tell the listeners where they can find you. Obviously, I'll put the note, links in the show notes as always. But it's just nice to have it um, spoken out as well. So, just tell the listeners where they can follow you, where they can find some of your work. 
Yeah, so I'm on uh, GitHub, Chris, Chris-Belcher, and I'm on Twitter, Chris underscore Belcher underscore. And then I'm on uh, Reddit, so I'm one of the R Bitcoin moderators, which is uh, u slash Belcher underscore. Uh, what else? Uh, I have an email address, Belcher at riseup.net. I think I have a Bitcoin talk account, although I don't really go there much anymore, but that's still around. So yeah, in any of those places, I normally look at them every so often. Fantastic. Uh, Chris, look, it's been fantastic to just discuss with you and really educational for me and I'm sure very educational for the listeners as well. So thank you for all the work that you're doing to help defend Bitcoin privacy and educate people. And thanks for coming on the show, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you found that educational. And if you haven't already, I encourage you to go and read Chris Belcher's Bitcoin Privacy Wiki. It's long. It might take about one and a half hours or so, but it's definitely worth it. You can tell he has thought very deeply about Bitcoin privacy, so you know there's huge value in it. Next, take a look at some of the different Bitcoin privacy software uh, solutions out there, such as Join Market, Wasabi Wallet, Samurai Wallet for example. Give them a try. Ultimately, the Bitcoin ecosystem will benefit from people trying these tools out and helping increase the size of the anonymity set. If you enjoy my podcasts, remember I have a day job and this does take me a lot of time and effort to produce high quality episodes for you. So if you're so inclined, you can help me out in a few ways. I've got a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Libera. I've got a Tallycoin donation link on my website, stefanlevera.com. Uh, but ultimately, just share the podcast with your friends on Twitter, Reddit, forums and chat groups. Also, make sure you guys are subscribed to my YouTube channel, which you can find by searching Stefan Levera. I'm hoping to start doing some more YouTube live shows, so that way I can help build the audience and also get a little bit more engagement. Also, thanks to the people who leave me five-star reviews on iTunes. Appreciate your support, guys, and see you next time.